Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the Birdman. He has a world-renowned reputation for caring and preserving birds, for doing live bird shows that are mobile to zoos and parks and all kinds of environments. He breeds condors for release into the wild. He's very well known also in the movie and television industry. He trains people how to receive and take care of these birds. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Birdman of Las Vegas, Joe Crathwell to its rainmaking time. Good day. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for that great intro. I want to meet that guy. Yeah, yeah. I think we have him right here. When I first heard about what you're doing, I was very, very excited. And to hear that you're breeding condors for release into the wild and training people and doing these live bird shows. Talk a little bit about your show, what you're doing now, and then we'll get into more as we go on. Well, the shows are um, a, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a stage show, but not a, a traditional stage um, the zoos and parks and aquariums that will contract me, um, the stage may be everything from a grassy area outside to an amphitheater to an indoor small theater, whatever they have to work with. And uh, we sit down and we come up with what kind of program they want and um, what kind of, of birds they want in it. And um, then I have two choices. Um, Either I'm going to bring them the program and perform it with myself or my staff, or we're going to build the program on their premises. And if that's the case, then I acquire new birds just for them. I start training their staff so that they're going to be able to do the show. And then after a period of time, usually six months almost to almost a year, then I bring the birds, finish training the staff on site, get the whole program up and running, and then leave it to operate in my absence. And um, th that has worked out really well because obviously I can only be so many places at once. And um, it allows us to have, you know, a half dozen programs going on right now simultaneously, all, all as we speak. You have been in radio and television and been interviewed and also trained people in the motion picture and television industry. What exactly are you training them to do? To get the birds to perform certain behaviors on cue in crazy, if not very difficult environments. Whenever, whenever we go on the set of a, of a movie, it's never, it's, it's never the environment that they promise it will be. You know, the, the conversation always starts off, oh, yeah, it's no problem. We just need the bird to do this, this, and this, and you'll be in and out within 30 minutes. Usually that means, okay, great, we're sitting in a trailer back, you know, outside the studio. They're not going to get to us on Monday. They're not going to get to us on Tuesday, and we might shoot the scene sometime Wednesday afternoon. Well, the bird not only has to, you know, continue to eat during that time and get his normal care, but we don't want to just feed him in a cage in a trailer because he needs to know that the most important behavior in the world for these couple of days is the behavior that's in the script of the movie or the commercial or the or the TV show. And so we have to find a way to to shoot the scene ourselves, even though there's no cameras. Oh, you actually have to shoot it? Well, we perform the scene, I Wow, okay. And um, then when Wednesday rolls around then, yeah, maybe it does only take 30 minutes. But in reality, it's, t it's taken, you know, more than half a week to get to that 30 minutes. And so having people that are able to go in there and be able to constantly adjust, constantly um, work with not just the production company, but also the birds, and completely redesign their program you know, on, a, on an hour-by-hour hour basis, that takes a lot of skill. Does this confuse animals when they're in a production mode or set off their typical daily schedule, or is there a daily schedule? There is a daily schedule, and it's up to us to absorb all of the shock and impact between the human's demands and what the bird understands. A lot of times I, I call myself the translator. You know, people will say, well, we want... We want a, a, pe a pelican for a commercial that will fly out, land on a piling, and, uh, and just sit there for a minute. 
and there's going to be like a logo and some some graphics, you know, next to them. Great. What I have to now translate to the Pelican is when I point from a distance, you fly to that piling and wait and wait and wait and wait and the reward is coming. That's it. That's the only message he gets. So no matter how many times the people then rearrange it and say, well, now we want it to be a blue piling. Well, now we want to have the wind blowing. Well, now we want to have it raining. Well, now we want to have all, you know, they keep changing everything. But meanwhile, I have to make sure that the only thing that pelican hears is I fly to that piling and I wait and the fish is coming to me. And, and so, you know, it's my job to absorb all the stress from what they're throwing at us so that it's nice, easy, simple, and repeatable to the poor little bird who can only understand what I'm saying by consistent, repeated actions and what I call a contract. And I'll, I'll establish a contract with that bird. I'll, I'll walk out and I'll set him on the piling and I'll hand him a fish. And then I'll come back and I'll set him next to the piling, jump him to the, to the piling, give him a fish. Then I'll back him up, he flies to the piling, and I'll give him a fish. Then we'll repeat it, and I'll delay it five seconds, give him a fish. Then delay it a minute, give him a fish. Then delay it three minutes, give him a fish. But we have been now built up a contract that he knows that every time he lands in the piling, the fish is going to come. And I can't break that contract. I can delay it and I can manipulate it to give the humans all what they want, but I cannot break the contract of the pelican. He will lose trust and he'll lose faith, and then that'll be it. He'll blow off that routine. Joe, are you the bird whisperer? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I talk pretty loud. <laughs> are you the um, bird loud whisperer? <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people have marketed it, you know, different forms of the horse whisperer and I, you know, there was a guy that called himself the Bird Whisperer, and and um, oh, it just that's not a that's not a term that really appeals to me. I, I know that a lot of people use that term as somebody who has some sort of ability to communicate and connect, and maybe an an empathetic kind of a kind of a exchange with them. But I don't have that. I it's really simple to me. I mean, I'm just taking a bird and explain to him what I want him to do, and then paying him very heavily so that he will want to do that over and over and over again, no matter how hard or how crazy the circumstances get. And so I don't think it really requires anything that's special or, or um, you know, abnormal or, or, or paranormal or anything like that. I, I, I really think that I'm just figured out how to speak in painfully simple terms that birds can understand. And I speak with repetitive, consistent, reliable actions, and they read those actions, and that's how they get the communication from me. And, of course, I'm watching their response. Does it work? Do they do the behavior again? Do they fly off and land in the tree, and it takes me three hours to get them down? Um, then that's the communication back to me as to whether or not I'm doing a good job or whether or not we're we're not on the same page you're doing a lot of work with the condors i would really like you to talk about your work with the condors and how you got into it well i actually got into condors by accident i, I had always been a fan of condors in fact the logo for my company was a drawing i made from a california condor educational sign at the los angeles zoo that I had seen when I was 19 years old. And I took this picture of this sign, and I held onto this picture. And I, it, wasn't like, it wasn't that I thought I was going to get condors one day. I didn't even think you could own them. I mean, they were as unobtainable as, as uh, I don't know, the Loch Ness Monster. And um, I you know, was working with other birds. I, I, I was living in Northern California at the time. And uh, I was um, rescuing bald eagles and golden eagles for the Department of Fish and Game and local game wardens and, and getting my eagle experience. And um, then right before I moved to Las Vegas in um, 1989, 
Um, I had been offered a pair of rare eagles from Siegfried and Roy. And it wasn't directly from them. It was actually from their veterinarian who also owned dolphins. He owned the dolphins at Marriott's Great America Theme Park in Santa Clara, California. And I was there doing the bird show. And he said, hey, you, you're really into birds. I've got a client that wants to place a couple of pretty exotic birds. Would you be interested in taking them? And I, I hadn't even heard of that species, battler eagle. And I was like, what is that? So I, um, I looked them up in a book, and they had this red face and red feet and a black body. And I thought, well, they, they can't look like that, can they? This guy must have been drunk when he painted this picture in this book. So um, I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So he gives me an address. I drive nine and a half hours all the way to Las Vegas, and I show up at this address, this big white house with a bell on the roof and gates that say S&R, and I'm thinking, you know, I've seen this house before. So I go in, meet them. They send me home with this, what is now very rare eagles, and um, that changed my whole focus. I said, you know, if I can obtain these birds, I'll bet you I can start, you know, meeting more people in this circle of rare birds and uh, get more cool stuff for the show. And I ended up meeting a gentleman um, in New York who had been given several condors that were, I don't want to say throwaway birds, but when the Fish and Wildlife Service was practicing breeding Andean condors, they really wanted to put all that effort into California condors. So once they decided they were going to give permission to trap all of the California condors, they were done with the South American birds. Could care less. Just give them to whoever has room for them. So this gentleman in New York had gotten three of them, and he said, I can't take care of all these birds. You know, can you, can you take one or two? Absolutely. <laughs> And I had met him because of these rare eagles from Siegfried Roy. So it was it was kind of this weird journey where where once I stopped thinking that only bald and golden eagles were the birds that existed, then it just opened up a whole new world. And so I got my first condor from him. And once you have a condor, then you become somebody who is experienced and, and able to have more. So the second one came as a result of uh, Hurricane Andrew in Florida. Miami Zoo got blown off the map, and they placed about 150 birds, I mean really fast. And I got their big male condor. And now I had two condors, and now I'm included in the stud book. My name is coming up on the list. There's only six people, private people in the country, who have condors. So it's a very short list of important guys. And um, I then started asking people for condors, and uh, I uh, uh, got in contact with Buffalo Zoo in New York and said, hey, next condor, your birds hatch, I'd, I'd like to have it. And uh, they said, sure, it's yours. So a couple months later, the uh, bird hatches, and they said, oh, you got a little girl. Perfect. Now I got two males and a female, and all I need now is one more female, and I'll have two pairs. And sure enough, I started looking through that book of the who's who of condor people, and started contacting everybody, saying, "Hey, you still have that bird? You know, what are you doing with it? Anything? Why don't you send it to me?" And uh, got another female that way. So that's that's where we got our two pairs, enough to start a program with. However, we're just kind of waiting on Mother Nature now. We uh, we have birds that were not properly raised to be good breeders. Some were raised by themselves. Some have never seen other condors. Some were hand-raised. And so we're doing a lot of therapy and counseling on these condors to explain to them <laughs> what they are and what they really should be doing. Showing, showing them dirty condor movies with a lot of, you know, oh my a lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, bouncy music in the back and, you know, set some pillows up. And anyways, uh, our older pairs finally gotten to the point where they are laying eggs. We haven't ha actually had a baby yet, but we've had, um, we've had them get closer and closer every year. So I, it's only a matter of time before it happens. Now you have a sanctuary, don't you, Joe? You have the Birdman Las Vegas estate, which is a refuge for abandoned and injured birds, but also 
a facility for breeding these endangered species, correct? Yep. We have uh, two acres outside of Las Vegas, and it's basically a bird zoo. And uh, the uh, condor breeding pairs, of course, have the largest cages. And um, it's uh, we're, we're right now we're taking care of more than 1,100 birds. And that includes birds that we rescue from people who can't take care of them any longer, birds that have been injured that we're trying to heal and get better released to the wild, birds that we're trying to breed, so, you know, in the case of the condors, so we can release their young to the wild, and then, of course, also all of our performing birds that we send out every every season to do performances. Do they get to fly around or no? Well, they fly during the shows, and right. the cages are lucky enough for them to fly, but flying is not a, a luxury. It's it's Birds see flying a lot differently than we do. Explain it. Yeah. Well, we're groundbound, so to us, flying is this big, mystical, romantic thing that we would love to do. Birds don't see it that way. To birds, it's like it's like jogging. Well, no, I take that back because some people enjoy jogging. It's it's like um, it's like hard labor. You know, it takes a lot of work. It it places them at risk, especially if they're a dove or a pigeon or something that is a a prey species. Um, they have to you know, figure out where they're going and, you know, not just end up landing somewhere where they're going to die. And then when they do land, they've burned all these calories and all these sugars and and, and all these, you know, short-term, you know, um, uh, electrolytes. And so they immediately have to replenish that. So that's why you see a lot of birds like uh, red-tailed hawks and stuff just sit on a perch over a field, day after day after day, conserving their energy, waiting for an excuse to fly. And then once they see a rabbit or a mouse or whatever, then they fly because they know at the end of that work is going to be payoff. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, even my birds, when I set them down out on the stage, sometimes they'll look at me and like, oh, man, do I have to fly? It's like a bird. <laughs> you know, that's what you do. That's what the show is. <laughs> <laughs> Do people ever project onto you that it's not good for the birds, it's not natural for them to do shows? There's a lot of concern that way for animal lovers. What do you think? Um, people that, that take that opinion generally have no understanding of, of the animals or the animal world. What animals really want is they want to feel like they have a chance of guaranteeing their own survival. And when you teach an animal that if it, pushes a red button, guaranteed every day it will make food appear. That is such empowerment to that animal that it is just the best thing in the world to him. And that isn't achieved out in the wild struggling for food every day. Right. I mean, granted, that's where these birds and animals and all the different species all became, you know, great at what they do. You know, eagles became great hunters because the ones that wanted to eat bad enough got faster and better at it. The birds that that are not hunters are still alive because they got better and faster at keeping away from the eagles and hawks. However, in captivity, a lot of those rules just don't play anymore. You know, my eagle learns that if he just lands on the glove, guaranteed there's going to be food every day. It's an easy flight. He doesn't have to struggle. He doesn't have to go days and days of cold nights without food. My glove doesn't run very fast, like a rabbit would. And it's an easy deal for him. He he doesn't understand what living in the wild might be. He just knows that he can lift 1,000 pounds, and I'm only asking him to lift 20. And every day it's easy for him, and it's guaranteed payoff. And, And he can make his food appear... And so in his mind, he's got the best deal in the world. That's why they don't fly away. Now, granted, I get a lot less complaints because of the free flight than tiger acts in cages or dolphins or orcas in tanks and things like that. People perceive them as wanting to get away and unable to, whereas my animals they see as able to leave any time they want and returning to me by choice. That's very interesting. In reality, all those animals are trained the same. I saw a video on YouTube recently where a pilot whale at a Japanese park came right out of the tank trying to get closer to the trainer. 
and fell right into the front row of the of the amphitheater. <laughs> and it was like, oh no! I mean, only fell four feet, not enough to to hurt the pilot whale. But you know, the pilot whale then just like rolled over and held still. And immediately, within twenty seconds, all the trainers were there, rolled them on the matting, got them off the hot concrete, started hosing them down. They asked the audience to please stay seated and stay calm. Everybody stayed calm and quiet. They're probably all interested to see what's going to happen. Within, within um, it was about six or seven minutes, they had the truck out there. They picked them up in the sling, put them on the truck, took them to the back to observation tank. The pilot whale held still the whole time, worked with them. And, you know, I watched this video over and over and over, and I thought, you know, that is just a simple mistake that the whale made. He probably won't make it again. He might. He probably thought that was there was a stage up there, and he probably thought he could come up onto the stage and beach himself and get closer to the trainer. Understandable mistake. I'm sure he won't make it again. But in the United States, a lot of people would say, well, he's trying to get away. He doesn't want to be in the tank. You know, how, how terrible. Look, he, he doesn't want to be there. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's a misinterpret of the behavior. Because if he didn't want to be there, he would have flipped around and resisted them and fought with all of his might. And none of that was being communicated by him. Granted, there are animals who show their distance you know, disapproval of, of of what's going on. Like the elephant in Hawaii that ran out of the circus tent and dismantled the Buick. I mean, that animal was angry by something. Maybe not one incident, but uh, maybe a number of incidences. But then again, I have friends who have elephants who you, you, you just talk to them. You just say, you know, hey, come on, follow me over here. And she'll follow you. And you say, lift one foot for me, darling. And she'll lift a foot, and you just pet her and give her a loaf of bread, and she's happy. So we really can't take such broad strokes and, and, and really brush animals in captivity. It's really a case-by-case basis, the same as children with parents or, or um, married couples or anything else. You know, it, it, it's, it's just a really tough thing to, to put under one big label. It's probably a little bit of in-between, right? Case by case, yeah. It's always a, a study of one because, you know, we, we don't even have enough elephants in the United States to even have everybody in the same comparison. I mean, we can't say that, like like a Ringling Brothers elephant who is, you know, pampered and treated like the star of the show, that elephant has a completely different history than an elephant at the Los Angeles Zoo who has most a lot of hands-off training. Maybe... Maybe some training just lift the foot so we can file your nails or take some blood or see if there's, you know, if the bottom of your foot is clean. That's different training than, than you know, the Ringling Brothers elephants. And so we can't really compare them and say which one has had a good life and which one has had a bad life. Because both those elephants are very happy with the life they know. If they were unhappy, there would be people getting hurt and, and doors to cages getting destroyed, and we would hear about them on the news all the time. Instead, we only hear about, what, one out of every thousand elephants. And so, you know, I think we hear a lot more from, from people complaining than we hear from animals complaining. I think that there is a portion of the animal kingdom treatment that is valid, having to do with the way whales are treated in the oceans and dolphins are treated in the oceans and other types of animals in the world. But like I said, in context, I think it's fascinating what you're doing. And I'm looking also at your site right now at birdman.tv. In the intro about you, it said that you lived with your grandparents who saw your love for birds and encouraged you to grow your own business and also helped you with these birds and build cages and props. I think that's neat. Very, very neat that your grandparents took part of this. They had a bird experience before I got there, but, you know, and, and they were just supportive of me. I know I know they loved me. If, you know, whatever I chose to do, I'm sure they, they would have backed me on. But um, when, when you're 15 years old and you start taking in uh, rescued macaws and cockatoos, if you don't have the support of the family you're living with, it's not going to go very far. What do you feed these birds? Uh depends on the species. Um, condors. 
condors eat meat. Mine do not eat, you know, dead or, or roadkill-ish type rotten meat like real condors might, but um, they, uh, they're, they're, they are scavengers and they do eat strictly meat. Um, and then, uh, you know, falcons eat meat, but falcons eat mostly other birds. Seriously? Yeah, they live off of eating other birds. Um, owls eat mostly mice. Um, crows and ravens eat uh, mostly mice and some bird of prey diet, which is kind of a little ground buffet, a little mixture of everything. Um, cranes eat a, eat a pellet that's made from uh, um, grains and grasses and seeds and much like rabbit pellets. The tree hornbills eat fruit and the uh, ground hornbills eat mice and chicks. And uh, storks eat tend to eat a lot of mice and a lot of chicks. Um, wow. Oh, my gosh. The parrots eat seeds, nuts, and fruits. And uh, the lorries eat nectar. Gosh, well, what else we got out there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to go around the property and, and include everybody. <laughs> Don't leave anybody out. Yeah. The, uh, the toucans eat fruit and, and pellets. How about the bald eagle? What do they eat? Uh, our only bald eagle doesn't eat fish, but they should be eating fish. Um, yeah, he looks at fish and he look, gives you a dirty look and tells you to go back and get something better. It's very strange. What kind of fish do you feed your birds? Is there a particular kind of fish? Well, like for the pelicans, we feed uh, uh, herring and uh, sardines they like and um, sometimes some smelt if we can get them big enough. They really don't like the little ones. And um, uh, I can't think of it. I, I've, I've been away from them for a month and a half, and if you don't stare at this stuff every day, your brain purges the information in favor of what you are handling every day. How do they like the weather in Vegas? Is it too hot for some of them? No, Las Vegas is good because the heat index is always about 10 degrees cooler. Uh, it's, it's not as hot as it looks on the thermometer. Um, and you just work around it. You know, in Las Vegas, you don't. During this time of uh, second half of July, right through the first week of August, you just don't do strenuous work outside between 10 and 4. Same as like uh, the winter in Minnesota and Minneapolis, you only go out and work between 10 and 4 because it's too cold in, in the other hours. So, you, you know, everybody just works around the, the weather. You know, we all can't live in La Jolla. <laughs> what is your greatest challenge right now with your profession? Absolutely, without a doubt, the answer to that is is government. Overregulation, um, mis misinforming the public about uh, people like me, about animal ownership in general. Um, there just seems to be this movement of government takeover of everything. It's it's just crazy. What Auto industry, banking, it goes on and on. And we've seen other countries go through this. I mean, for heaven's sakes, even Cuba has just has just removed a lot of its restrictions against private small business. And it's like, wait a minute, if they've come full circle, why do you guys want to try it here? Hey, they're coming out of the bad ideas, you know. So, anyways, the the part of that that hits animal ownership is just more licenses, more permits, more of an attitude that people cannot take care of animals, therefore the government, you know, needs to watch them and regulate them and tell them every single thing to do. Now, this implies that some person in some regulatory agency knows more about taking care of that animal than you do. And so it becomes tough. You know, I, I, I have people telling me what I can do with permits and where I can go and how, what I, how I can take care of condors, and they've never even seen a condor before they showed up to my house. So, so it's, it's difficult. You know, it's, it's really difficult. I, um, my, one of my next shows is going to Alaska, and I'm talking with the uh, Department of Fish and Game in Alaska, and they said that they can't have West Nile virus come into the state and they can't have um, birds getting loose in the state. Therefore, they want my birds to be completely screened at all times and to have tethers attached to their legs, so like a kite, so that they'll never fly away. 
and I said, I'm sorry, excuse me? Did you just say somehow or another my half a million dollar lineup of pristine, star-pampered performing birds are a West Nile virus threat to the state of Alaska? And you want me to take these expertly trained, reliable, free-flying birds that have flown everywhere from the White House to Steven Spielberg's movie set, and you want me to tie ropes to their legs so they don't fly away suddenly? I said, oh my gosh, where do these these ideas come from? (laughs) You know, after 28 years, if I can't fly a bird over an audience at a state fair, then by all means, that state fair would not have hired me. (laughs) So how is it going with the regulations right now then? Well, I've offered them some radio transmitters on the birds instead of tethers, and we're still waiting for somebody to make an executive decision up there. But, but you know, like, like Animal Planet has this new series out called Animal Hoarders, and it makes you think that any person who has more than two pets is some crazy sick person that is hoarding animals, and all those animals need to be removed and placed. I will say this, Joe, that... I do feel bad that you're going to put RFID on the animals just simply because a lot of animals have gotten cancer from chips. But I understand why you have to do it. I think it's terrible, though. I think it's so sad. Well, this isn't a chip. This is a little transmitter that just sends out a ping. And if the bird flies around this group of trees and you can't see it any longer, you grab the receiver and, and you've probably seen on wildlife programs these guys with these TV antennas out in the wild yep. trying to figure out where the bear is with the radio collar on. It's You follow the bird the same way. The yeah. tiny little transmitter that's about the size of a AAA battery and an antenna that's about eight inches long. And um, I haven't heard of it causing any damage to the birds. Not the ones you're describing, but if they were micro, like small enough to get through the eye of a needle... When you inject radio transmitters inside an animal, a lot of them have gotten cancer, which is different than what you're describing. Is that like the transmitters they use for snakes, for tracking snakes? I don't know what they use for snakes, but a lot of the RFID experimentation came on animals. It's basically chipping the body so that there's a sending and receiving signal in the body underneath the skin. Not the passive uh, ceramic chips like like, um, Avid chips that are just for identification. I don't know about that. I have no idea. It depends if it's placed on the body or inside the body. It makes a big difference. Those are placed inside the body, but they don't have anything active. You send a signal in, and it bounces back with a shadow, and that shadow has like a 13-digit number, and then you can find that dog's owner. Or, or Right, I understand. I understand what it is. Do you have to deal with this everywhere you go then, this regulation? And who's regulating? Is it fish and game? It's just a general movement yeah. or, you know, that, that is, I, I, I think it's an over-worrying done by people who don't have an understanding of animals. And it pops up everywhere from local animal controls all the way up to, you know, the Department of the Interior level. And, um, you know, we, um, there, there's actually a law they're, they're considering um, this Congress is considering it that will make every exotic bird, mammal, fish, and reptile completely illegal in the United States. They're making a lot of things illegal, including probably the air we breathe pretty soon. It's very <laughs> frightening. It's very frightening. CO2 is now considered toxic. We don't know what's happening with the EPA, who we used to trust was looking out for us, is now allowing toxic dispersants into the Gulf Coast. There's all kinds of kooky things happening with laws and overregulation, and I would imagine it includes everything now. Well, I I just know that they you know they claim to want to protect the environment, but I really don't see how making grandma's koi fish illegal is going to protect the environment. So. You know, it's just it's it's just a non-understanding. It's it's like a an overreaction, and then an overexpenditure of resources, and then in the long run, what really have you achieved? Because Grandma's going to keep her damn koi fish. I'm sorry, she's not going to give them up because somebody sent her a letter in the mail that says you need you know you need to turn them into animal control and have them euthanized. She's going to say really. She's going to throw the letter away and go out and feed her fish tomorrow. <laughs> And there's not 150 million animal cops that are going to go out there and stop every grandma with koi fish. So it it just gets to the point where it's almost like this war on paper. And in reality, 
a lot of people who are, you know, not in the public eye like myself, their lives won't even change. My life has to change because I come in on a on a car or an airplane and and uh, I'm there to get attention. So if I suddenly appear in the middle of downtown Los Angeles and I don't have my paperwork straight, somebody's going to notice and, you know, they might ask questions and those questions lead to inquiries and the inquiries go, well, he didn't ask for a permit from us. Why is he here? Uh-oh. So I have to be meticulous about it. Call ahead, get all the permits, get all the right stuff. And so, you know, when you see these TV shows on where they're just seizing animals and taking them away and euthanizing them, placing them, whatever, and it's like, oh, man, I I don't know what the future of animals in captivity is. There, There's not that great a future in the wild. You talk about the oceans, and we're talking about whales in captivity. Um, I, I know a lot of people were going off about the whale, you know, that had killed the girl at SeaWorld. But SeaWorld is still the safest ocean I know. I mean, the, you know, the chemicals are regulated, and Japan and Russia can't whale at SeaWorld. So there still is a lot of great about captivity. I mean, California condors being bred and, and born in captivity at San Diego Zoo, Los Angeles Zoo, Oregon Zoo. Um, that wouldn't happen if we did not have captivity as, as our option. So I, I don't know. I'm just I'm hoping the understanding of the good of, of captivity is going to outweigh the, the people that think everything should be free, everything should be in the last little ounce of, of wild wilderness that's somewhere between Cheyenne and Denver. I, I don't know where this wild is, but it's getting smaller and smaller every day. I think you make an interesting point and an interesting case for looking at the whole gestalt of animals in the wild and animals in captivity. It's very interesting to listen to your perspective on it. Talk a little bit about your work with Steven Spielberg on the set. What did you do during that movie and what movie was it for? That was a movie called Hook. And uh, even though we didn't have the main contract on the movie, we got called in to fly um, some uh, macaws and and, uh, provide cockatoos for it. And we did some very tough scenes, all but one of which ended up on the cutting room floor. (laughs) And I kind of laughed and I said, oh, my word, he had us here for three weeks at Columbia Pictures in, in Burbank. And uh, we did all this work. We lived down here. We ran up all these bills. We got paid very well. And then it all went to waste. I said, no wonder his movies cost $100 million. Wow. (laughs) But it was fun. You know, I got to hang out with Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman and Julia Roberts. And, you know, it just, you know, one one day you're like, well, we need a bird at at this address in in, uh, Burbank. And then, you know, the next day, Julie Roberts is petting your bird. I mean, it's it's a very crazy kind of an industry. I know a lot of people go, wow, that's so great. Well, she, she's just a girl. I mean, she just has a job that some people think is very cool. But, you know, we, we, we do, you know, tons of news. We did a live uh, news show um, just the other morning, and, and um, the camera guys were laughing about... Uh, you know, how well I know what works on camera and what doesn't. And I said, well, you know, after the first 500 TV appearances, you start to really get it down. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question that's kind of off the chart here. How do you assess from someone who's been so many years in this when a bird is discontent or not well? What are the signs? You've worked with so many birds for so many years. What are the signs well, those, those, those are two different things. When you say not well, I think physically. And when you say discontent, I think unhappy, which would be psychologically. Can you answer them both? The big challenge is to find out if there's something wrong physiologically. Birds do not want to get picked off by another bird or another predator, so they hide and mask their illness all the way to the bottom of the ninth inning. By the time you... F- with your own eyes as a human, notice a bird is sick, you, it's way deep into the game. So the trick is to catch it a lot earlier, find out what it is fast, and attack it with medicine or figure out what the source of the problem is. Maybe it was bad food, bad water, bad environment, bad something. They're, they're, they're sensitive to all kinds of environmental influences. And 
fix it fast and pray that you caught it in time before you lose the the parakeet or the macaw or the $75,000 eagle or the $150,000 condor, whatever it is, the trick is you got to get in there and intercept it early. So I spend a lot of my time walking around, looking at birds, and looking for anything out of the ordinary that tells me there's something might be wrong. And with the birds I work with on stage, I get more of a warning because we're so close. I mean, I know if that hawk is going to fly from that perch to that perch. So if he suddenly comes in low or he suddenly just seems like he's not interested, I get a lot earlier of an indicator because we have all this behavioral contract that we've established. And he wouldn't break the contract unless something was wrong. So that's immediately I take a weight, I take this, I take that, I look down his throat, I check his droppings, I, I see how much he's eating. If I get more, another indicator that something's wrong, then we draw blood, we take tests, we, we you know, run it. If, you, if they come back, hey, he looks okay, then you go back psychologically and you say, okay, well, was it just a hot day? Was he just having an off day? If we've cleared him physically, then we start looking at, at the mental reasons as to why he was off. Now, if he's just unhappy, well, there's different reasons for that. Um, a lot of times it's not that the bird doesn't want to participate in the show or in the pet relationship, because really they'll do whatever pays well. And I don't mean just pay with food. I mean pay with food, praise, shelter, security, you know, and if all that stuff is all taken care of, even just fun, just passing the time in a fun way, anything that benefits them, they're in. But what I find from going deeper in, into a more intense psychological relationship with some of these birds is that a lot of times the birds are outsmarting the person, and so therefore it's not that they're unhappy, it's that they've got control of the dance and they really have no idea what dance they want to be in. You know, you can't let the bird drive the car because he'll drive the car right off the road. He doesn't know how to drive. So, so when the human is no longer in control of the relationship, then it just does not work. It's, it's very dysfunctional. And this is why a lot of people can't work ravens in shows because while most birds like macaws and cockatoos will work the show, ravens work the whole room. Ravens will figure out that the kids in the third row brought popcorn. And that's it. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, <laughs> that bird's going to look at you, pretend like he's going to go to the next target, and then suddenly halfway, veer left, go down, open beak, bite at the kids. They pull their hands back so they don't get bit, but in reality, he just did that to make them move their hands. Now he grabs the bag of popcorn, and now he's sitting up top of the tree behind the theater eating popcorn all day. And it's like, ah! <laughs> 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 what are you going to do with that? You can't do anything with that. He got gotcha. He got not only the, the, the dumb trainer on stage, he got the dumb kids in the third row. So it's like, forget it. you get, you got to fire him. That's fire How do you fire a bird? Ah, uh, you just retire him. We, 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 we have a, a, a pretty good firing program. Do you? <laughs> like Wall Street. <laughs> it's kind of like the Donald Trump of firing birds? No, it's, it's kind of like AIG firing. Oh, my there God. You go. Get out of here. Don't ever come back. Oh, by the way, here's $18 million in stock options. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just retirement. We start looking for either um, a mate a mate or... Um, or, you know, sometimes another home, but I rarely give up birds. I get too attached to them. So, um, you know, yeah, a nice big flight cage and a mate and toys and stuff to keep them preoccupied and enriched. And, and um, you know, thanks for working in the show for five years, and now you get however many years you need um, doing nothing. It's a very good retirement program. Do they ever get bored? Um. Well, not the showbirds. The showbirds have a job, and they really focus on the job. So that is the enrichment. But birds at home, um, yeah, sometimes you see them get bored. If you see signs of boredom, you, you, you know, you, you step up the enrichment. Some of the smarter birds, like, like the ravens, they get bored a little easy. 
and you'll see them doing crazy things like pulling newspaper up out of the bottom of the cage and doing origami with it or something. I mean, we, we put a lot of these kids' toys in there that look like an abacus. It's um, beads along kind of bent wire, and the kids are supposed to push the beads from one end of the roller coaster wire to the other. Have you seen those? Uh, no. A lot of times they're in um, hospitals or dentist offices, you know, out in the lobby for small kids to play with. And Yeah, it's a real simple, very um, primate chimpanzee kind of a thing. It's, it, you literally just push the line of beads from one end of the wire to the other, and ooh, wow. Pretty colors. <laughs> well, anyway, a raven will stay busy on that for hours and hours and hours, and he'll move the beats to the left, and he'll move the beats to the right, and then he'll move only one beat, and then he'll notice that the other beat he can get in the middle, and he can just go left to right, left to right, left to right, and oh, that's so fun. It's like, bird, knock yourself out, man. <laughs> we'll, get you, we'll get you another one when you break that one. Joe, don't you find that the kind of life that you have is very charmed and blessed to be living with this family of birds, bringing new families in, raising them, taking care of them, bringing them on shows. Isn't that blessed? Yes, but not for those reasons. I have been with the birds so much that it is really like a long-term marriage. It's, I can't imagine my life without them. But what really makes me excited to get up every day is, is just the realization that everything around you is a phenomenal, unique miracle. And, and once you get that into your system, oh, it, it just changes everything. I mean, it's, I wonder if I could explain it in a nutshell. If you take the origins of the universe... And out of that, you create a galaxy. And out of that galaxy, you create a series of planets. And on one of those planets, you cover it with water, and you spend four billion years practicing with different forms of life until you get a few that you like. And then out of those few that you like, one of them happens to just get smarter and smarter and, and in, invents toys and objects and shelters and cell phones and TV remotes, and next thing you know, we're born into this. And, and it is such a unique intersection of events that are so beyond human comprehension and understanding that you then look at a tree and you go, that is phenomenal. I mean, how is a tree made? I, you know, you, you, you look at the bird flying by and you just call that's, that's incredible. How did that bird develop a blue wing when all the other birds have, have white wings? And, and, and you just get into this mode where, where everything is just wow, you know? And so, yeah, you know, when, when they ask me to open a show in Cairo, by the time I've landed in Cairo, I've already had a phenomenal adventurous trip. Then you land in Cairo, and it, and it just keeps going. I mean, I woke up in the morning, opened up the shade, and below me, I said, what is that island? They said, that's the island of Crete. Really? That's so cool. I mean, look at the whole island. And, and, you know, and, and people look at me like, wow, what was in that guy's drink last night? You know, But it's, it's just once you live in a constant state of awe, then everything is phenomenal. So I turn around and I look at, at the birds, which I call little people, because a creature is a creature. Just because we're smarter doesn't make us that much different. But um, I'll turn around and I'll, all these birds will be, you know, making a lot of noise. I turn around and I go, why are you people so loud? And then they'll <laughs> all look at me. And one will look at me and it'll be like, what the heck did he just say to us? And I will burst out laughing because it's like, how do you have a relationship with a bird that is so deep, so intense, that you can hear them? I can hear him say, what the heck did you just say to me, buddy? <laughs> and it's like, I just start laughing. And yeah, you know, it's kind of like the guy that's laughing when he's listening to something on his headphones. And everybody else on the bus looks at him like, whoa, whatever. Shut up. <laughs> Sounds like you have a great, fabulous life. Have you ever read the book Jonathan Livingston Siegel? 
I haven't, believe it or not. I uh, I didn't even read the book Birdman of Las Vegas. I mean, I'm sorry, Birdman of Alcatraz, which is what they were calling me when I performed in San Francisco before I went to Las Vegas. And yeah. I could have read it because I could have, like, I don't know, had some marketing value out of it or something. <laughs> I'd say I was the Birdman of Alcatraz before the Birdman of Las Vegas. It was a very good work release program. So how do we find you? Do people come up and visit your sanctuary or do they only go to the shows? Only to the shows. Things have been so busy the last couple of years, and, and I'm, I mean, I'm just very blessed that my business has actually increased during all this slow time. I, you know, I see a lot of people hurting, but it's not that I've, I've done anything miraculous. It's just that a lot of people in my industry have gone out of business, so the people have fewer options to call, and therefore it seems like my phone is ringing more often. But um, it... Uh, I mean, I, I this year alone, I've gone from uh, uh, Oregon to L.A. to San Francisco to uh, Cairo, back to L.A. to North Carolina, Iowa, next up Alaska, back to New Mexico, back to Cairo, back to Las Vegas, then to Orlando, then back to Cairo again, then to Chile, and then it's Christmas time. Wow. So... So I'm, you know, I monitor my my sanctuary with uh, remote internet cameras. I have a very good staff that's there. Um, you know, we have constant daily talks, phone calls, reports, texts, all kinds of stuff. I have fantastic veterinarians in Las Vegas. Um, I have uh, my staff taking care of the other shows, like in in North Carolina, and I'm keeping in contact with them and. Um, then I'm performing my show on stage. I've got extra birds with me that I'm training for the next show. I'm training birds for the Cairo show out here in, in Iowa. Fascinating. And Yeah, you know, it just, you know, some people look at me, and, and people that have known me for 15, 20 years, they look at me and they go, oh, my gosh, I could never keep up with you. And I go, <laughs> what? I'm just, I'm just taking it as it comes. You just don't slow down. And, and you know what? Again, when you're in that constant state of awe, you don't run out of energy. Sit down and you turn on something like America's Got Talent, which is like the show of, my, of the entertainment industry, right? And you finally get an hour of TV before you fall asleep, and most people just go, oh, what a crazy day. I need a beer or a glass of wine. I need to relax and whatever. For me, it's like, you know... What a great day it was. I watched a cockatoo laugh. I watched an eagle fly. I had a six-foot-tall crane come over and give me a kiss. I walked, stepped outside the theater and pet the giraffes that are in the, in the pen next door. I, I made arrangements with Caesar's Palace to have an elephant bring in a groom of a wedding in a couple of weeks. And now I get to sit down and soon I'll be asleep and it'll all start over again. And it'll be a new set of adventures and fun and... Oh, I just, I wish my grandparents were still alive to see it. They're just, I always hope they're proud. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking to, listening to, and learning from Joe Crathwall, the Birdman of Las Vegas. And he can be reached at birdman.tv. Please try to see one of his shows. And Birdman, I look forward to meeting you in person very soon. Thank you so much for being a guest on this Rainmaking Time. We hope you'll come back and join us. Thanks for letting me chat.